Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 3 this morning. So let me lead us in prayer uh, as we do. Heavenly Father, we pray that you speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, as we look at this passage together. Uh, help us to see Jesus and the grace uh, that you've given us in him more and more, uh, and to live our lives more and more in ways that please you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, we saw that we all need hope. Not a fool's hope that can't deliver, but a real hope of a certain future. And we also saw that God has given us new birth into that living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For God in his mercy has given us an inheritance in heaven that can never perish or spoil or fade. He is keeping that inheritance for us, and he's keeping us through faith for that inheritance. And we can have glorious joy even in the midst of suffering, uh, because we have a sure and certain hope of the world to come. And we've also seen that the God who kept his Old Testament promises in Jesus Christ, by raising him from the dead, will certainly be faithful to his promises for our future salvation. So we have a hope, a living hope for the future. And that hope is able to sustain us, even in the midst of the difficult trials that many of us are facing, even as we speak. But endurance in the faith in spite of trials is not the only thing we need. The hope that God gives us not only enables us to persevere as Christians, but also to progress in the Christian life. It's not just about keeping trusting in Jesus and so making it to heaven in the end. It's also about changing the way we live in the here and now. And we will see that in our passage today. Our passage begins with the Holy Spirit reminding us, one more time, to always keep the future that God has for us in focus. In verse 13, uh, Peter tells us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? Grace means unmerited favor. It means God treating us far better than we deserve. Right? God has treated us with grace in the past by forgiving our sins through the death of Jesus. God treats us with grace in the present by, by giving us his spirit and keeping us trusting in him. But Peter tells us here to get our hope fully set on the grace that God will bring us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us be really, really focused on what God will do for you when Jesus comes again. For when Jesus comes, you'll be in glory with him forever. You'll enjoy your inheritance, that inheritance you didn't earn or work for. You'll enjoy that perfect relationship with God and his people forever. And you will experience the ultimate joy of doing and being what you were actually made for. You will serve and worship God without the hindrance of sin, the way you were meant to do. You will know as you are known, and nothing, nothing, nothing in this world could ever match that. And the God who gave you forgiveness and new life in his Son is going to give you this inheritance uh, in him, even though you don't deserve it. Keep concentrating on that future grace. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if we're going to do that, we need to proactively take control of how we think. Sometimes we can be very careful to act in godly ways. Uh, sometimes we be very careful to speak in godly ways, but then we're lazy when it comes to our thinking. Right? We just let whatever rubbish wants to come into our head dominate our thoughts. But if we're going to set our hope fully on the grace that is to come, we need to be purposeful and deliberate in how we think. Uh, and so in verse 13, before the main command to set our minds on the future grace, Peter tells us to do so by preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. 
right? Preparing your mind for action is literally gird up the line of your mind, right? It's like saying, pull up your robes, get ready to go, right? In the mind. And being sober-minded is being self-controlled about how we think. Because friends, in times like this, it is easy to let our minds just go wherever we want and to forget about the grace that is to come and just to be just looking at the trials that we face now. And sometimes it takes a deliberate decision to say, no, I'm not going to let myself think that way. I'm not going to simply wallow in the present circumstances. I'm going to get ready for action by putting my hope on the grace that is to come. Now, that might be harder or easier for us, uh, depending on our own mental state at the time. But that is what we are to strive for. Yes, be realistic about your current situation. Yes, think about it carefully. Formulate your plans. But don't dwell on it. Lift up your eyes and see that there is a future. The road ahead may be very rough, but the future is bright. Like a runner who keeps her eye on the finish line, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you have your eye on that finish line, that will help you run properly in the race. And to run our race properly with a focus on heaven, there are four big actions or commands that the Spirit gives us here to obey in this world. Our Peter will expand on all of them in the rest of his letter, but he introduces these four things in our passage. The first one is in verse 15, where Peter says, Be holy in all your conduct. The second is in verse 17, where we are taught, Conduct yourselves with fear. The third one is in verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And finally, in 2 verse 2, long for pure spiritual milk. Holy living, fearful conduct, genuine love, appropriate craving. And around each of these commands, Peter gives us the wonderful gospel truths that stand behind them. Because God never just tells us to do things. He always links what he wants us to do with what he's already done for us in the gospel. So let's look at each of these four commands and the gospel motivations behind them. First of all, the command, the holy living. Uh, verse 15 and 16 say, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Uh, the quote there is from the book of Leviticus, where God actually says that three times. Uh, God's people in the Old Testament were meant to be very, very different from the people around them. He gave them all kinds of laws about what was clean and unclean. He gave them all kinds of laws about what they, how they were to, and weren't to worship. He gave them all kinds of ethical commands or laws. And in each of those three, he says, be holy as I am holy. In the New Testament, Christians are also meant to be holy. We are to be different from the world around us. Uh, Peter reminded his readers that there was a time they used to be conformed, uh, in, in verse 14, to the passions of their former ignorance. Right? They, just, they just followed their own desires because they didn't know any better. But now they can't do that anymore. They must be holy as God is holy. And friends, whenever anyone becomes a believer, there's a whole lot of unlearning and relearning they have to do in terms of how to live. Now, here in Malaysia, we have so many different subcultures. Uh, and so what different ones of us need to learn and unlearn might be different. There are some subcultures in which sex before marriage is considered normal and in fact desirable. Well, we need to unlearn that because we are meant to be holy. There are some cultures where unfaithfulness in marriage is considered understandable, particularly if it's by the husband. We need to unlearn that because we are to be holy. There are some cultures in some subcultures in which drunkenness is a social norm. That's just how people celebrate a festival. We need to unlearn that because we are to be holy. 
There are some subcultures in which domestic abuse can be overlooked. It's considered a man's right. We need to unlearn that because we have to be holy. There are some subcultures in which lying and cheating and, and bribery are an acceptable way of doing business. We need to unlearn that because we have to be holy. And there are some subcultures in which the worship of idols or ancestors or spirits are a necessary part of so social or family life. Well, we need to unlearn that because we are to be holy. We are Christians, we can no longer be conformed, as Peter says, to the passions of our formal ignorance. And why? Because we are meant to be, in verse 14, obedient children of a holy God. Friends, God is holy. He is different from everything and everyone else. And he has called us out of the world and made us his children. And he says to us, you are in my holy family. And how we do things in this family are different. You've been given the family status. You will enjoy the family inheritance. Live the family lifestyle. Be holy as I am holy. And so, brothers and sisters, if we set our hope on that future grace, then the first thing that we do in response is to be holy in our behavior. Well, the second big action the Spirit commands here is fearful conduct. Right? Halfway through verse 17, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, we saw two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, that we are exiles, strangers, sojourners, foreigners in this world. Our real home is in heaven, where our inheritance is. But as we live in this world, God says, Conduct yourselves with fear. Now, what does that mean? Right? It doesn't mean that we are scared that God's going to send us to hell. Right? If we trust in Jesus, we've been forgiven of our sins. Our inheritance is in heaven. So what sense should we conduct ourselves with fear? Well, we get the clue from, about that motivation in verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear during the time of the exile. In other words, it's saying God our Father judges impartially according to each person's deeds. We are accountable to God in everything we do. Like, like children who answer to their parents, we answer to our Father who is a perfect impartial judge. If you think you can just do what you like and no one's going to question you about it, that leads to all kinds of mistakes and wrong behavior, doesn't it? But if you know that you have to give an account for your actions, well, that'll make you careful in what you do, won't it? Right? If you know that your work will be audited, you'll be careful to do things in such a way as it will pass the audit. If you know that you have to answer to God, your Father, for everything you do, then, then you'll act in such a way that's consistent with that. Now, many years ago, when I was working as a doctor, I always asked myself, would the action I now take or don't take stand up in court if one day I was sued? I was never taken to court as a doctor, though I only practiced for five years. But I do know that one day I'll give an account of my life to God. And so will you. I know in my own life in ministry, I have to keep saying to myself, how am I going to answer God when he asks me about this? So I must conduct myself in such a way that I'm prepared for that. That's what it means to conduct myself with fear. And there's also another motivation here for conducting ourselves with fear. Think about this. If something is very, very valuable, then you take it very, very seriously. Right? If something is really, really precious, like a, like a priceless piece of pottery, you don't, you don't play play with it. Right? You handle it with care, don't you? Uh, and friends, Peter says in the middle of verse 17, 
<coughs> conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, brothers and sisters, you were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid for you with his life. That's far more precious than silver or gold. He sacrificed himself on the cross to take the punishment of your sins, to make you his very own. He died to rescue you from the empty way of life that you and your forefathers have been living in, a life without reference to him. He was foreknown in verse 20, before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last time for you who believe. God raised him from the dead, verse 21, and gave him glory for you so that your faith and hope might be in God. Now, if Jesus died to rescue you from your old lifestyle and he rose again to give you a living hope, do you think the way you live is important to him? Of course it is. It's of massive importance. He paid for your new life with his very own blood, which makes what you do with it very, very significant to him. So how should you act? Very carefully. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. More about Christian conduct later on in this book. The third thing God wants from us as we look forward to the future is genuine love for one another. At the end of verse 22, that says, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. All right, friends, if we love one another like that, then we will treat each other properly. Uh, we will seek good for each other, not harm. We'll put each other's needs above our own. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to simply give everyone whatever they want. Right, love might need to be tough at times, but it will still be love. And if our love is genuine, then we will not just pretend to love in front of each other and then stab each other in the back afterwards. It's not the kind of love that God wants us to show. We're to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And why should we love? Well, the first reason is given in verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth... For a sincere brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart. You see that? The truth here is, is the gospel message about Jesus, that he died for our sins, that he rose again as king. Uh, the gospel calls us to repent and believe in him. And so obedience to the truth means coming under Jesus as our king, trusting him to save us. And when we obey the truth, when we repent and believe, then our souls are purified. Our sins are taken away because they were laid on Jesus. He paid the penalty for them. We are considered pure and acceptable and clean to God. We have purified our souls by obedience to the truth. But what's the purpose of this purification? Look again at verse 22. You are pu having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love each other earnestly from the heart. Right? The goal of our purification is that we would have a sincere brotherly love. Right? Jesus cleansed us and made us his own, not so that we could live in isolation with him, but to make us a people. He didn't save us to be just individuals. He saved us to be like him and his Father and the Holy Spirit, a community of love. He saved us to express his nature, his eternal nature of love. And the goal of salvation is that we might be a people who express sincere brotherly love. That is what we were saved for. And so the Spirit says, love each other earnestly from a pure heart. Now, the other side of the same coin is a new birth. Right? On the one hand, we obeyed the gospel. On the other hand, God gave us a new birth that enabled us to experience that in the first place. Right? In verse 22, uh, Peter says, love one another earnestly from the heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Right, then it quotes Isaiah 40 uh, in verse 24, 25 to show us that this, this word of God is imperishable. It will last forever. It says, all flesh is like grass, all is glory like the flower of, of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And what is this word, verse 25, is the good news that was preached to you. So what is he saying? He's saying, God has given you new birth. You've been born again through the gospel, the good news, the eternal word of God. Now you have new life, a life that comes from the gospel and is continually sustained by the gospel. And since you have this new life, implication is you have a new lifestyle, a lifestyle of love. For the gospel that gave you new birth, the gospel that permanently sustains you in your Christian walk, is the gospel that clearly shows the love that God has for us and that he gave his son to die for us. The gospel shows God's love for me. And if he loves me like that, I must love him in return. And the gospel also shows me his love for you. And if I love him, I must love you too, because I know that he loves you. We've been born again by the permanent gospel. Therefore, we must love each other earnestly from a pure heart. And what does that look like? Well, to start with, we should, in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Right? Those things are not compatible with genuine love. We can't be able to harm each other or be on vendettas against each other. Put away all malice. And we can't be lying to each other or being dishonest with each other. Now, put away all deceit. We can't pretend to be good to each other and then try to undermine each other. Put away all hypocrisy. Uh, we can't be jealous of each other, whether it's about ministry or relationships or social standing. Put away all envy. We can't speak bad about each other if we don't know for sure that it's true. Let's always, always, always give each other the benefit of the doubt. Put away all slander. No malice, no deceit, no hypocrisy, no envy, no slander, because we love each other earnestly from a born-again heart. And having put those things away, then we are ready to pursue the fourth commandment, appropriate craving. Look what Peter says in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Right, friends, we've already seen that there is a salvation waiting to be revealed at the last time. And we've seen that God keeps us through faith for that salvation. But the path to that salvation is not just a path of maintenance. The path is not just keeping what we have. It is a path of growth. We need to keep growing as we head towards that salvation, growing in holiness, growing in conduct, growing in love. And we grow by the pure spiritual milk that we should long for. Now, there is another passage in 1 Corinthians where the metaphor of milk is used. Right? Don't get them mixed up. They're talking about different things. The pure spiritual milk here is the word of God in verse 25, the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. If you have tasted the gospel, you know that the Lord Jesus is good. If you believe the gospel, you know he is so good that he is willing to die on the cross under God's curse that you can be forgiven and saved. If you believe the gospel, you know that he rose from the dead to glory and he's promised to raise those who belong to him as well on that last day. If you have tasted the gospel, you know that God really does love you. And the gospel you have tasted is not something that you ever leave behind. You never say, oh, that's okay when I first became a Christian, now I'm moving on to something else. No, 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 no. You keep on growing. You need to keep growing. And to keep growing, you need to keep feeding on the gospel. 
Yet keep longing to hear it, keep keep believing it, keep obeying it, keep speaking it, keep singing it, keep meditating on it, keep it precious and central in your heart and life. Keep working out its implications for the way you view God and for the way you see other people and indeed yourself. Keep working out its implications for holiness and conduct and love. Like a newborn baby that craves milk, crave the gospel of grace. For that's what brings you to Jesus. That's how you know he's good. That's how God will sustain you and grow you for the rescue that will come when Jesus returns. So brothers and sisters, let us deliberately set our hope fully on the grace that we brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, let's live holy lives, no longer following the old ways. Let's conduct ourselves with fear and accountability. Let's love one another in a genuine way and get rid of ways of relating to each other that are not consistent with love. Let us continue to crave the pure spiritual milk of the gospel, for by it we will keep on growing in all these things until the day we receive our inheritance.